Welcome to this edition of the You're Crazy Professor, but it might just work, amazing podcast. In this episode, I want to explore the idea that Dirty Harry is possibly the best cowboy movie ever made. Dirty Harry directed by Don Siegel and released in 1971, was possibly the first movie in the wave of modern gritty cop movies, and it inspired the second genre of loose cannon police films. It also fashioned for itself an unfair reputation as a movie where cops shoot first and where the protagonist, Inspector Harry Callahan, is seen as an unthinking reaction to a newly emerging liberal America. Dirty Harry is more than a maverick cop movie, and as the US currently moves towards a more muscular political stance, with growing unrest about politics and policing alike, it is timely to revisit Dirty Harry. Its critical reputation has grown, with it consistently included in greatest movie lists. In 2012, the US Library of Congress included it in the National Film Registry. Callahan has provided a role model to generations of boys, men and police officers. Released on the 23rd of December 1971, Dirty Harry was a commercial success, which went on to spawn four sequels. Made for a modest budget of $4 million, it grossed $36 million alone from the initial US cinema release. It also courted controversy, with voices raised concerning the depiction of policing attitudes and methods, brutality, victims' rights, the passive role of women, and the depiction of black criminality. Despite initial hostility and some misunderstanding of the movie, it has aged well and, upon further scrutiny, shows itself to provide valid comment on policing and society at the time. Those who view it as merely a movie about a cop with a big gun and a catchphrase miss the point altogether. Ignored by the American Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences upon release, it received no Oscar nominations. In a cinematic context, Dirty Harry was released at the end of a year which had seen the releases of A Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick, The French Connection by William Friedkin and Shaft by Gordon Parks. Despite contentious issues of violence, race, criminality and sex running throughout those movies, it was Dirty Harry which was continually assaulted by the critics, possibly because it was released right at the end of that year and was viewed by many as a convenient summary of what was wrong with modern movie making. To many, Dirty Harry as a piece of cinema and Callahan himself as a character were both too physical and not as cool or cerebral as The French Connection and Popeye Doyle. The cinematic pairing of Clint Eastwood and Don Siegel had worked well together before. Coogan's Bluff in 1968 saw Eastwood playing an Arizona deputy relocated in New York. This was then followed by Two Mules for Sister Sarah in 1970 and The Beguiled in 1971. Siegel had also helped Eastwood in his own directorial debut with Play Misty for Me in 1971, with a visual in-joke played in Dirty Harry, allowing the viewer to see Eastwood's own film advertised on a billboard as Callahan walks past a cinema. Dirty Harry spawned four sequels, Magnum Force in 1973, The Enforcer in 1976, Sudden Impact in 1983 and The Deadpool in 1988 
but this present re-evaluation of Dirty Harry will not focus on those movies, other than stating that the somewhat variable quality of those films has been unfairly used to reframe and criticise the original movie in a form of cinematic revisionism. Each of those sequels also curiously saw Callahan's moral position shift, from initially being against the system in Dirty Harry, to acknowledging that the system is better than nothing in Magnum Force, and even arguing for more gender equality within the system in The Enforcer. Filmed throughout the spring and summer of 1971, Dirty Harry was loosely based on the unsolved case of the Zodiac murderer who killed at least five victims in the San Francisco Bay Area between 1968 and 1970. Zodiac's communications and threats to law enforcement and local media were influential upon the formation of the Scorpio character in Dirty Harry, who commits his murders mostly by sniper rifle while taunting the police about who he may target next. While the real Zodiac killed his victims at Point Blank, Scorpio targeted his victims from the anonymous rooftops of San Francisco's North Beach and Business Districts. Some of Scorpio's bullets are fired by him while hiding behind a white picket fence on a rooftop, and perhaps there's no stronger visual metaphor of the enemy within than that. The movie made about the Zodiac by Fincher in 2007 devotes an entire scene to the characters in that film who were hunting Zodiac, actually attending a screening of Dirty Harry in a San Francisco cinema in 1971. This is very much a bizarre act of cinematic homage and also cannibalism. The prologue of Dirty Harry shows Scorpio zooming his crosshairs in on a young woman in a yellow bathing costume, swimming in the open-top pool of the as-then Holiday Inn on Merchant Street and Kearney in downtown. A single shot hits her in the shoulder, sending her to the bottom of the pool. She's killed by Scorpio, who's positioned four blocks away on the roof of 555 California, which was the commercial centre for the Bank of America. This anonymous murder from a distance within the first two minutes of the movie is just as cold-blooded and frightful as the real-life killings of the Zodiac, but it's made more alarming by Scorpio's ability to use his distance from his victims to his advantage. With that first killing, the movie sets out two very clear signals. Firstly, the viewer initially encounters the symbolic use of yellow that will occur throughout the film, seemingly associated with positive elements and sometimes innocence. Secondly, the viewer is made aware that the city is actually a very dangerous place. A few blocks away from Scorpio's vantage point of his first killing lies the Transamerica Pyramid, the tallest building in San Francisco at the time, which was being constructed between 1969 and 1972, slap bang in the middle of when Dirty Harry was being filmed. That Scorpio was sniping from the roof of the Bank of America, and in such close proximity to the Transamerica Pyramid, which was an emerging towering symbol of American corporate growth, is not coincidental. It gives the viewer a clue about Scorpio's monetary motivations. He's not killing for peace and love, despite his peace symbol belt buckle, but he is killing for ransom money. In order to accentuate Scorpio's anonymity, the enormity of the task facing the police, and to reassure the viewer of the urgency that something must be done, Callahan duly appears at the rooftop crime scene and casts his critical eye over the vista of San Francisco, 
accompanied by the opening on-screen credits. The opening credits, of course, which are all in yellow characters, except for the word dirty in Dirty Harry, which itself is a muddy brown colour. Callahan's tacit understanding of criminality allows him to focus his gaze on the ominous 555 California building in the distance, while others at the crime scene are focused on the victim's body in the immediate area. The camera shows the building where Scorpio had been positioned, viewed from behind Callahan, and the viewer gets to visually empathise with what Callahan sees in his city. Callahan is a San Franciscan native from Potrero Hill, a traditional working-class neighbourhood. The viewer next sees Callahan striding in a straight-lined and purposeful way through the downtown area, heading from the Hilton to 555 California, in order to traverse the dirty pipework and ducting on his way to the rooftop used by Scorpio as his vantage point. When Callahan gets there, he finds a used shell casing and a note from the killer. The first dialogue used in the movie is heard, Callahan's slow exclamation of Jesus. This break in the case impresses upon the viewer that Callahan is a cop who understands criminal minds and acts on that understanding. All this is done within the first six minutes of the movie, and it highlights its lean approach to storytelling and direction. The movie-making style itself is a reflection of Callahan's character. I'd like to focus a little bit now on the psychogeography of the movie. The use of symbolism, film noir techniques, and the psychogeography of the Bay Area are used in a very satisfying way to portray San Francisco as the backdrop for rising social malaise in 1970s America. Psychogeography, as both a theoretical concept and also as an art form, has evolved into many things since its inception in the 1950s. Current psychogeography, um, an appreciation and understanding of, of how people move, think and live through their environments and spaces and the meanings they extract from their well-trodden worlds, neatly lends itself to a movie such as Dirty Harry. The entire movie was filmed on location in San Francisco, except for one single scene where a bank robbery occurs, which contains the infamously misquoted catchphrase of Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? which was actually filmed in a studio lot at the Warner Brothers Studios in uh, Southern California. Psychogeography provides a way of understanding movies containing consistent geographies, and the locations and landmarks used in the film provide further intriguing aspects and content. San Francisco is a city that's geographically spread out because of its oceanic limitations and the natural Bay Area. There are very clear district boundaries broad vistas and many, many hilltop views across the city. Dirty Harry uses the cityscape to great effect, and it provides a counter-narrative to the common trope of it being the city of peace and love. Don Siegel sought filming locations that had not been overused in movies, and thereby provided an introduction to a San Francisco that was unfamiliar to many. This was repeated when a remake of Siegel's original Invasion of the Body Snatchers was made in 1978. That was set in San Francisco, and it also combined familiar locations with many unknown dark dock sides and gothic waterfronts. 
Dirty Harry is mostly tied to the geography of North San Francisco, and in particular North Beach, with occasional forays out beyond, such as the discovery of Anne Mary Deakin's body at North Point, or a rendezvous at Mount Davidson Park, and Scorpio crossing the Golden Gate Bridge in the hijacked bus. But for his introduction to the cinematic world, Callahan did not stray far, giving the movie a sense of identity and believability. It is a site of cultural decay and a source of menace, with a gothic atmosphere recreated by alleyways and long shadows cast by skyscrapers in the downtown area. It doesn't shy away from showing the seedier elements of the city at night. San Francisco has topless bars, antique shops, adult bookstores and family diners in rows together on the same streets, alongside housing projects, public parks, sports stadia and grandiose city buildings. It's a city where the cultural cognoscenti of the City Lights bookstore loitered across the street from hoods, pimps and strippers in bars like Big Al's and the Roaring Twenties. The intimacy of the city is demonstrated in the second act, when Callahan is bounced around various locations on a wild goose chase, carrying a yellow bag of ransom money, and he's able to cover miles of city on foot and by subway. San Francisco itself is roughly seven miles by seven miles, and is a very small, major city. When Callahan finally catches Scorpio on the football field at Kizar Stadium, the location is no coincidence, and the geography is highly symbolic. Kizar Stadium was formerly the home of the San Francisco 49ers and the Oakland Raiders before them until early 1971. If Callahan ever had time for leisure pursuits, he would be a football fan and domestic beer drinker, and a ballpark would be his natural environment, clearly giving him a home advantage when he runs down Scorpio. Policing is essentially a sport after all, with rules and expectations, and people who cheat the rules. The scene could have been set at any sports field in San Francisco, but the location was crucial. Kizar Stadium is located at the end of Haight Ashbury, and is literally a ball throw away from the ground zero of the peace and love movement a few years before. The ethos of Haight Ashbury was a natural antithesis to Callahan as a cop. Kizar Stadium had also been host to many gigs by progressive acts seen as being key to the counterculture movement. When Callahan gets Scorpio at the stadium shoots him in the leg and subsequently tortures a confession from him on the 40-yard line, nothing could symbolise more strongly that the end of the reign of peace and love had happened. Callahan is at the top of his game at this point, and it's curious why the torture scene was not acted out in one of the end zones just to strike the point home even further. As Callahan put it himself while driving around the city with Chico Gonzalez looking for Scorpio, these loonies, he said, they ought to throw a net over the whole bunch of them. Well, no appreciation of a movie would be complete without a little bit of symbolism. And Dirty Harry contains many interesting angles and camera shots that are worthy of further investigation because there's a subtext. Some of these may be less significant than others, but clear themes can be explored in the visuals within the movie. In the four scenes that are shared by Callahan and Scorpio throughout Dirty Harry, there is always some form of cross present somewhere in the shot, and this could be an introduction of the concept of redemption, presumably of Scorpio. Much is often made of the good versus evil metaphor in cop movies and westerns, and Dirty Harry may be no exception to this. In their first shared scene together, 
Harry, positioned on a rooftop across from the Peter and Paul church, waits for Scorpio to attack a victim nearby. Above Callahan is a 40 feet high rotating sign with the words Jesus Saves, writ large in blue and red neon. At the other end of the ensuing gun battle between them, Scorpio takes cover behind picket fencing on top of the Dante building. The sign above Callahan was constructed especially for the shoot and it was removed once filming was completed, deliberately placed there to emphasise the good versus evil narrative. By their second meeting in the movie, in Mount Davidson Park, Callahan and Scorpio are seen underneath the famous stone cross landmark. Scorpio forces Callahan to face the 40-foot high cross and put his nose right up against the cement before he bludgeons him from behind and attempts to kill him. By their third encounter, when Callahan chases Scorpio down to his lair in the bowels of Kizar Stadium, the scene of impromptu torture on the 40-yard line of the football field is shot from an angle above the act of the characters where the yard markers on the pitch form a small cross behind Scorpio's head as he lays on the grass. It gives the impression, perhaps, of Scorpio carrying a cross on his back or perhaps his own crucifixion. The fourth and final meeting of the pair is introduced when Scorpio is in charge of the stolen school bus and he sees Callahan standing atop a bridge as the bus approaches it. Callahan is surrounded by various telegraph poles and wires and antenna and a cross structure can be seen panning into the shot while Callahan patiently waits on the bridge. As the bus passes underneath, Callahan jumps onto it almost like a warring angel descending from on high. Callahan can also be seen to represent a determined everyman, possibly questioning his role, and in two scenes within the movie, the visual technique of angel shoulder is used to great effect. In the diner scene, when Callahan suspects a bank robbery may be in progress as he's about to get his hot dog lunch, he sits at the lunch counter and looks over his shoulder out of the window. Jaffe, the cook, is stood in the background in his chef's whites, and the position of the camera gives the angle of Sheffy almost standing on the shoulder of Callahan. Later, after Callahan was beaten from behind by Scorpio beneath the concrete cross in Mount Davidson Park, the wound dressing that he has on his neck also takes on the appearance of an angel. And again, like Jaffe, this appears on his left shoulder. Interestingly, angel shoulder devices used in cinema, TV and cartoons traditionally position any such angels on the character's right-hand shoulder, with the devil often appearing on the left shoulder. Here with Callahan, there's an absence of the devil figure and only the presence or suggestion of the angel, and the angel is on the non-traditional shoulder. Callahan is perhaps clearly good and is not plagued by the devil or uncertainty, yet the shoulder positioning suggests perhaps he is unorthodox. So the criticisms of Dirty Harry, well, there were many at the time and many that still persist. Dirty Harry was held responsible by some for a kidnapping case in Chowchilla in California, approximately 150 miles away from San Francisco in 1976. Two brothers, James and Richard Schoenfeld, and their accomplice Fred Woods, hijacked a school bus of 26 children, along with the driver. Their captives were held in a trailer buried into a hillside for 16 hours while they negotiated a ransom of $5 million. Thankfully, the hostages all escaped by sneaking out through a ventilation hole whilst the captors slept. But the comparisons between this real crime and the hijacking of the school bus and the kidnapping of Anne Mary Deacon by Scorpio are obvious. 
Hijacking and kidnap were not new crimes in 1971, of course, but at the time it seemed quite fitting to blame movies, and high-profile stars or directors were seen as being at fault for many extreme criminal acts that occurred in society. The people of California were already beginning to experience the darker side of the links that were emerging between popular culture and criminality, with the Manson family crimes occurring in 1969 still echoing in the news, and the tragic events at Altamont Speedway occurring just two years before Dirty Harry was made. Dirty Harry is about a toughened, grizzled police inspector waging war against both a serial extortionist as well as a broader population of a city teetering on the verge of being overrun by crime. The original script by Harry and Rita Fink and Dean Reisner, with some uncredited help from Joe Himes and John Milius, reflected contemporary problematic issues in society, reflected broad cultural changes and some filmmaking dilemmas in general. The no-nonsense approach to solving society's ills taken by Callahan are part of the reason why the film obtained the title of both blockbuster legend and cultural keystone. Sometimes Dirty Harry's brilliance is overlooked because of claims about excessive violence, simplistic portrayals of criminal behaviour, racism and misogyny. But for viewers who can look beyond the barrel of the magnum and the often misquoted catchphrases, there is a movie full of rich symbolism and cultural touchstones. Even Callahan's radio call sign, Inspector 71, clearly made him a man metaphor, alerting viewers that the 60s were over and that times were getting tougher. Dirty Harry was originally set in Seattle, but Eastwood himself felt that his birthplace of San Francisco was much more suited to this dueling western cowboy film, populated by an underbelly of robbers, killers, hippies, vigilantes, black panthers, freaks and beatniks. Callahan is sometimes thought of as a vigilante cop, but he is not a vigilante. He's a cop who circumvents bureaucracy and time-wasting when he needs to. San Francisco actually has a rich heritage of vigilantism running from the 1840s to the 1860s. As the city was establishing itself, it developed a good system of frontier justice that was acceptable, balancing natural justice with the rule of law. Whenever bureaucratic police forces become immobilised, frustrated populations require an agent of action, either legitimate or otherwise, and in Dirty Harry, Callahan is clearly that agent of action. Dirty Harry wears its cop allegiance proudly, with the opening credits scrolling down the monument residing within the entrance to the Hall of Justice, which lists the names of San Francisco Police Department officers who had died on duty from 1878 to 1970. This is accompanied by a version of the hymn Eternal Father, known in the US as the Navy Hymn. Throughout the movie, several mentions are made of fallen officers or those incapacitated in doing their duty. The movie was conceived at the end of 1968, shortly after the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, when the American public felt anger at the erosion of justice. FBI data shows that by 1971, incidences of serious crime had yet again increased compared to the previous year. Murder had increased from 16,000 to 18,000 cases. Rape had increased from 38,000 to 42,000 cases. 
Assaults had increased from 335,000 to 369 cases. And in total, serious crimes in America in 1971 stood at 8.5 million recorded incidents, an increase of 500,000 from the year before. The murder rate of the US population in 1971 was 8.6 homicidal deaths per 100,000 of the population. This was also an almost all-time high. One of the things that troubles me about Dirty Harry is that it's often recalled by people who classify it as low culture. Being identified as an action movie is one of the lowest genres within cinema, possibly lower than, dare we say, the lowest of the low, which is horror. It's a problem that Dirty Harry faces a lot. Although far from low culture, its currency was reduced by the flow of imitators that followed it, both in the cinema and then on television, where maverick cops became standard fare, often accompanied by the common stereotypes of signature hallmark weaponry, nihilistic catchphrases, a dislike of the legal system and police hierarchy, and the protagonist's loner domestic status, often caused by some form of psychological wound resilient from the cop lifestyle. Dirty Harry was often mistaken as part of this conglomerate, when actually he was the vanguard that went before it. Dirty Harry is not a shoot-em-up movie either, and critics place too much significance upon the size of Callahan's forty-four Magnum and how he used it. Callahan uses his gun in only a small percentage of the screen time of the movie, and definitely kills only one individual, his nemesis Scorpio, at the end of the movie, although the question of the fate of two bank robbers Callahan shoots is left deliberately unanswered. It's worth pointing that the two individuals he shot were driving at him and trying to run him over. A single confirmed fatality is a small body count by Hollywood standards, and is clearly much smaller than the four kills amassed by Scorpio himself as the bad guy. During the movie, Callahan directly saves the lives of more people than he kills. Perhaps the blame for this could be levelled at the marketing of the movie by Warner Brothers and how it was sold to the cinema-going public. Promotional materials used taglines such as You don't assign him to murder cases, you just set him loose. Or even this one, Dirty Harry and the Homicidal Maniac, Harry's the one with the badge. Or even this particular favourite of mine, with his forty-four Magnum handgun, the most powerful handgun in the world, Dirty Harry wipes out crime to hell. That one doesn't even scan properly. These promotional catchphrases removed any subtleties within the movie and created unrealistic expectations of violence. Film posters and lobby cards used a photo of Callahan with a distorted perspective which gave the 44 Magnum gun barrel unnecessary prominence with a diminished Callahan in the background. The reality is that the gun was never the star of the movie and it only ever played a minor role. Dirty Harry does not attempt to understand crime or offenders, and neither does it try to sympathise with the etiology of crimes committed by those at the bottom of society. The police chief in the movie, incorrectly, tries to use some pseudoscience cod psychology to understand Scorpio's serial offending behaviours. He mentions sick guys having behaviour patterns and they will rob the same store three or four times in a row because it must appeal to their, quote, super ego or something. 
That line of cod psychology is never followed through or picked up by any of the other characters, so any attempt to understand Scorpio is readily dismissed. Dirty Harry is not a crime thriller, but more distinctly it is a cop thriller, a movie about cops for cops. It is not a movie about the criminal or the crime, and it doesn't attempt to develop Scorpio's character or background in any way in order to create some charismatic or likeable villain. It already has that with Callahan. This could be a deliberate dismissal of the rise of behavioural criminal profiling that the FBI and American law enforcement were generally pushing in the late 60s and early 70s. Some might therefore try to describe the movie as anti-progressive, It's an ultra-conservative blast where a white male, heteronormative cop is claiming back his city from those who aren't like him. Critics describe Dirty Harry as having a fascistic moral position. Well, thank you, Roger Ebert. Or occasionally it had a sub-fascist fantasy element. Kyle, in 1985, claimed the action movie had long-held fascistic views under the surface but it was Dirty Harry which finally allowed them to emerge openly and be exploited. Such criticism was never levelled at Bullet in 1968, directed by Peter Yates, the slick cop movie also set in San Francisco two years before Dirty Harry. If Dirty Harry fetishised the 44 Magnum, then surely we could argue that Bullet had already fetishised the Mustang. Bingham claimed that Dirty Harry was reclaiming back traditional values and power that had been lost to feminism, civil rights, hippie culture, the anti-Vietnam War movement and the sexual revolution. If this is what Callahan was doing, it was not done by him while espousing any set isms or political beliefs, but merely the pursuit of justice for victims. A fascistic movie would be unlikely to involve a scene where a Mexican cop saves Callahan's life or where a police doctor, played by black actor Mark Hertzens, not only looks after and tends to the wounded Callahan, but also jokes with him about police brutality. Steve says to Callahan, Do I come down to the station and tell you how to beat a confession out of a prisoner? In the defence against claims of extreme violence and fascistic behaviour in Dirty Harry, there are numerous scenes where Callahan encounters characters who he could kill or injure without any serious complications, but he chooses not to. Callahan is more tolerant and mild-mannered than his critics give him credit for. Sometimes he gives his assailants the opportunity to decide their fate, such as the bank robber, played by Robert Popwell, who hears Callahan's ammunition-based soliloquy about feeling lucky for the first time. In other scenes, Callahan encounters a variety of characters on his nocturnal journeys through the seedy streets of San Francisco, and he dispatches them with either words, a warning, or even a punch in his own self-defence. But he never so much shoots somebody with his magnum. Would-be muggers are fended off. Vigilantes who attack Callahan are allowed to go free, and a suicidal jumper is talked down from a rooftop. A young man offering Callahan sexual services is simply told to go home. For a movie that's criticised for celebrating violence, it should be noted how much the protagonist chooses the least violent route in the situations he encounters. Whenever Callahan is dismissive of people he meets, he insults them in non-racial or partisan language. Insults such as hammerhead, fatso and punk are all insults he uses. His beef is not with creed or race, gender or sexuality but it is with stupidity, 
bureaucracy and time wasters. In an underground scene where Scorpio pays a stereotypical Black Panther member to beat him up in order to frame Callahan for brutality, the actor, Raymond Johnson, who's uncredited, plays the character all in black, with black leather gloves that he dons for the beating, and with rudimentary spectacles to suggest he's a noble yet educated fighter. Scorpio is given the beating he pays for, and when calling his attacker a, quote, big black son of a bitch, surely Scorpio is the fascist here, he's given more kicks on the house, and the role of the angry Black Panther is over. Although only a small role in Dirty Harry, it's a piv- it is a pivotal moment in suggesting that police popularity was so low that disparate elements of the underground movements, whatever their motives, would unite to defeat the authorities given the opportunity. So, Dirty Harry, is it a movie for angry citizens and cops? Well, for the majority of the film, Callahan relies on a combination of old-fashioned cop hunches, his dystopian view of human nature, an implicit understanding of criminal behaviour, an ability to decipher the clues left by Scorpio, and tailing Scorpio through the seedier parts of San Francisco. The movie is influenced by film noir, evidenced by the shadows and darkness and, and strange scenes that we have there, but San Francisco is also shown as a city with a proud heritage of being used as a backdrop for several film noir classics, with skyscrapers and the dark night of the waterfront and the piers. The impressive architecture of the interior of City Hall and the mayor's office is frequently used by Siegel to highlight Callahan's alienation an isolated position as a cop with no love for bureaucracy, often giving rise to some arch moments that highlights Callahan's likability. Callahan is not the type of protagonist to be pushed around by suits at City Hall, and he's certainly not without delivering some withering liners about his superior's lack of experience on the streets. Callahan's motivation is often explored during many difficult conversations with superiors, city officials and the mayor, giving an insight into Callahan's dogged, uncompromising and truculent nature. However, accusations of racism and misogyny against Dirty Harry and Callahan do not bear fruit, yet Callahan knows the value of such a reputation. When trying to avoid any accusations of racial intolerance or racial profiling, the mayor tells Callahan to go easy in culturally diverse or sensitive districts of the city, such as Fillmore, traditionally a home to African Americans, Jews and Japanese immigrants. The mayor says to Callahan, I don't want any more trouble like you had last year in the Fillmore district. Do you understand? That's my policy. Callahan retorts, Yeah, well, when an adult man is chasing a female with intent to commit rape, I shoot the bastard. That's my policy. The mayor asks, Intent? How do you establish that? Callahan says, When a naked man is chasing a woman through an alley with a butcher knife and a hard-on, I figure he isn't out collecting for the Red Cross. Many Americans felt there was too much concern and involvement from experts and news channels concerning the rights of the accused and the rights of criminals, and Dirty Harry tapped into the growing feeling that victims of crime had been forgotten. After Callahan illegally arrested Scorpio at Kizar Stadium, he obtains evidence without a warrant and tortures a confession out of Scorpio, he's then summoned to City Hall by the district attorney, where he's given a dressing down. 
Callahan is informed that he's very lucky that he's not being indicted for assault with attempt to commit murder. The DA carries on and says, Where the hell does it say you've got a right to kick down doors, torture suspects, deny medical attention and legal counsel? Where have you been? Does Escobedo ring a bell? Miranda? I mean, you must have heard of the Fourth Amendment. What I'm saying is that man had rights. Callahan's reply sums up the entire film. Well, I'm all broken up about that man's rights. The district attorney barks at Callahan about the newly enshrined Miranda rights and Escobedo. To then enhance the ridiculousness of the situation, the DA consults with Judge Bannerman, a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, who is sitting in the DA's office in the scene. Berkeley, just a few miles east across the bay from San Francisco, was the college choice of beatniks, dropouts and radicals in the 1960s. And the professor's choice in chastising Callahan serves to complete the symbolic portrayal of traditional America by these middle-class progressives. The injustice served to Callahan by those educated liberals makes the viewer all the more sympathetic to his case. And it's no coincidence that the liberal judge Professor Bannerman in the DA's office was from Berkeley. It was at that university campus in the People's Park area two years earlier on the 15th of May in 1969 when the governor of California at the time, Ronald Reagan, sent in the police and the National Guard to break up mass student demonstrations. The breakup of those protests descended into extreme violence and heavy-handed treatment of student protesters, including the use of shotguns, dogs and bookshop. The DA's office in the movie was the scene of their revenge upon Callahan, who perhaps saw Callahan as symbolic of the Reaganism to come. Callahan replies, And Mary Deacon, what about her rights? She was raped and left in a hole to die. Who speaks for her? Dirty Harry was the right movie, made at the right time, for the kind of people who felt outraged at what they saw as legalistic nonsense that got in the way of justice. It's worth adding that Callahan would have been legally vindicated for some of his actions that night when he arrested Scorpio, as the search of Scorpio's property would have been lawful under exigent circumstances, given that Callahan believed Anne Mary Deacon was still to be alive at the time. A theoretical conundrum based on the Anne Mary Deacon part of the story, known as the Dirty Harry problem, is a legal dilemma that's often given to law students and training police officers to this day. So the character of Callahan is a cinematic enigma, a contemporary man in the most progressive city in the world who retains traditional values of justice and the fight to pursue it. He dresses conservatively with a palette of subdued plaid sports jackets, deliberately chosen by costume designer Glenn Wright, who'd worked with Eastwood previously. The only hint of anything modern about Callahan's style are the wraparound shades he wears in the opening sequence, which would not look out of place on a beatnik. Although conservative, Callahan is open to progress, and he's certainly not misogynistic or racist. The movie is not misogynistic or fascistic. Callahan displays a mild apathy towards almost everyone he works with or meets in his line of duty. He rarely smiles, but does so at his own jokes and cynical quips. It's no tall order to list those characters that Callahan is kindly or benevolent to. Mr. Jaffe the Cook, Steve the Doctor, Chico Gonzalez's wife, and even Chico once he himself becomes a victim of injuring the line of duty. 
When Chico Gonzalez asks his grudging new partner why he's called Dirty Harry, he gets an answer from another grizzled cop, Di Giorgio, who interrupts and says, Ah, that's the one thing about our Harry. He doesn't play any favourites. Harry hates everybody. Callahan toys with his new partner, Chico Gonzalez, and pretends that he particularly doesn't like Mexicans. Callahan's dry reply to Chico is delivered, accompanied by a wink and a smile to Giorgio that could not be more warm and playful. The Callahan enigma continues, but at least the viewer knows Callahan has a sense of humour, and it is his reputation and facade that's fascistic, not the man himself. These are cops with thick skins, cops cops. Callahan's curtness is not motivated by misanthropy, but influenced by two common tropes in cop movies. The first is his desire for self-preservation, and to not let others get hurt by his maverick, direct-working style. At the time, the wounded warrior syndrome in cop dramas was yet to become the common theme that it eventually would be. When Callahan finds out his new partner, Chico, the replacement for a replacement, is a college boy, he cannot hold back, asking what Chico's major was in. Callahan toys with Chico some more. Just what I need, a college boy. Oh, sociology, oh, you'll go far. That's if you live. Just don't let your college degree get you killed or I'm likely to get killed along with you. Secondly, the other influence upon Callahan's direct approach was his obsession with urgency and the constant lack of time. Throughout the movie, Callahan makes references to not having time. I haven't got time to break in a newcomer, he protests. Who has the time? I was up until 3am looking at search patterns, he grumbles to a police chief. For Christ's sake, she'll be dead in an hour, he shouts at a slow-working ER doctor. Callahan is almost the human predecessor of the 1980s cinematic character of the Terminator, that relentless anti-hero who never ceases in the pursuit of its job. Exploring this restless warrior theme further, the viewer never sees Callahan either at rest or at leisure in the movie, and even when he grabs a hot dog in his lunch break, he's immediately interrupted in his first and only bite of it by a bank robbery that he just anticipated. Making the point clear, Callahan then continues to outgun the bank robbers and foil their crime while still chewing on the sole bite of his frankfurter. Callahan has no time for being stationary or doing very little, and he has even less time for those officials who waste time and dawdle. After a meeting held by city officials discussing Scorpio's first ransom note, Callahan is finally summoned to see them, and he complains about having to wait for three quarters of an hour out in the office. The only times when Callahan is seen reclining is when he's laying wounded or when he's receiving medical treatment for his injuries, and it's the closest that Callahan gets to taking breaks. Callahan is seen once sat at a bar, but that's when he's following Scorpio when he's off duty and in his own time. Other occasions when Callahan is seen laying down involve him being beaten up by a gang of vigilantes or being pistol whipped and almost killed by Scorpio. Callahan is always on duty and never off, and he never willingly stops moving. In a scene reminiscent of Rear Window by Hitchcock in 1954, the viewer is invited to think if Callahan is aware of his own position when he's on the rooftops in North Beach after dark, looking for the prowling Scorpio. In a quiet moment, Callahan spies three young hippie women through a window, two knocking on the door of an apartment, which is answered by a third woman who's completely nude. 
Harry is intrigued at this scene, and with his eyes squinting in voyeuristic amusement, he's perhaps tempted to watch, and he utters the line, You owe it to yourself to live a little, Harry. But before Callaghan can look any more at this alternative side of sexual leisure, Scorpio makes his move, almost like a divine punishment, delivered to Callaghan for daring to have a fleeting moment away from being a cop. By way of further divine intervention, the viewer hears that Officer Collins, who was located nearby to the manhunt, was killed by the fleeing Scorpio, reminding us that Callahan is never permitted to have a fun time, and if he does, there are serious consequences. On only one occasion in the movie does Callahan open up to any other character about his background. He comforts Chico's wife after he is hospitalised and makes the decision to leave the police. Callahan chooses to give his story only once it becomes apparent he will not see Chico's wife again, and explains that he was left a widower after his wife was killed by a drunk driver. The psychology behind Callahan is not allowed to go any deeper than this, and when asked why he stays in the police when all around him lays the carnage of the job, he simply answers, I don't know, I really don't. Callahan is not super cop but perhaps a lost man who does not know what to do outside of policing. He's an action hero, with his driving necessity to see justice done, even if that hero cannot always understand the society in whose name it is sought. After killing Scorpio at the end of the movie, Callahan tosses his badge into a creek, possibly as a partial homage to High Noon in 1952, by Eastwood and Siegel. There was much debate between Eastwood and Siegel about the ending, both concerned what such a symbolic act might suggest. Callahan is not retiring from the police by tossing his badge into the water, but rather he is rejecting its representation of bureaucracy that would have possibly allowed Scorpio to take his hijacked bus of children to the airport unmolested and ultimately escape. Callahan throws away the rules, but not his duty, and thereby introduces the possibility of future adventures with greater potential for Callahan's own form of maverick justice. Like the cowboy cop in Coogan's run before him, Callahan feels increasingly out of place and at odds with society. Coogan, however, is able to return to his home of Arizona at the end of Coogan's run, after completing his task in the uncivilised city of New York. Unfortunately for Callahan, after he completes his task and kills Scorpio, he has no alternative place to return to and he remains trapped. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the You're Crazy Professor, But It Might Just Work, amazing podcast. <laughs>